This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. Transformation. That's what we've been talking about for a month now. With Romans chapter 8, the powerful words of the Apostle Paul writes to us about the change that we have in Jesus Christ and the way that we can live it out. Today, if you will, take a a moment to reach in front of you, pull out one of these connect cards, and write your name on there, and you can turn that in either at the end of the service in the offering baskets, or we have uh, baskets in the back that you can put those in. And you can use those to write prayer requests or to um, put your name down for something that's coming up. We have some announcements in the bulletin, and so if you want to use that to uh, say to sign up for one of those things, you can do that. Today I want to try something uh, um, might be a little different anyway. If you've been around a while, you probably know what this is, but uh, I don't remember doing it here for a long time. It's not real complicated. <laughs> But it might be a little confusing, at least a little noisy. I hope that's what I really what I'm trying to do is bring up some noise here. So if you will, if you can just take your program today, and inside of that, we have our scripture reading for today, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And I want to attempt to read these in unison together. Now, I'll lead us, and you just try to follow along. We'll go real slow, but we'll just simply read through the words. And I'd like to have you stand as well. If you would stand, if you, everybody have a, a program you can look at, good. And let's read these words together from Romans chapter 8. Shall we start? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Now, I did that for a couple of reasons. And one one is, so I want these imprinted on your brain. And the way to do that is here, you, you, you were able to see them with your eyes. You spoke the words with your mouth. You heard the words with your ears. And they're a lot more likely to stick in your head. 
I think what Paul is writing to us here is one of the things that, that we have the most trouble with, and I'll probably say we a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm saying because I have, think I have the most problem with this, and maybe you do as well. Um, I think this is one of the root issues for all of us as Christians, and I think today we'll see that it's even one of the things really just that makes us human. And being human, Jesus also faced this. Today I want to look at this scripture in light of what today is, Palm Sunday. This is the most important week of the year for us as Christians. This is Holy Week, and everything that happened this week in Jesus' life makes us who we are and establishes us as Christians and as a church. It is amazing to understand and to see as we read the Bible and the Gospels especially the import that was placed upon this particular week in Jesus' life. We have more information about this week in Jesus' life than any other period. In fact, from every other period put together. There is more that we find about what happened to Jesus during this week. We, we get a day-by-day account of what is happening in Jesus' life. And so we have four Gospels. Matthew has 28 chapters. Matthew takes eight chapters to talk about this one week in Jesus' life. Mark has 16 chapters, and he takes six chapters to talk about what happened this week in Jesus' life. Luke has 24 chapters. He takes six chapters to talk about what happened this week in Jesus' life. John has 21 chapters. John takes nine chapters to talk about what happened and, and really, what most of what John deals with is the night before, on Thursday night, crucifixion and resurrection. Three days in Jesus' life. Almost half the gospel dealing with only three days. That's how important this week is. And I hope maybe this week you can take some time and actually celebrate some of those things that Jesus has done for us and what it really means to us. That's what I want to talk about today, especially as Jesus... Uh, laid down his life as Jesus sacrificed himself and made a difference in our entire world. Now, one of the things that typically churches celebrate this week are the seven last sayings of Jesus. Jesus spoke seven words from the cross. Uh, And those words we find in the gospel, and typically we, we lump them all together. But they're not in all the, all seven sayings anyway, are not in all four gospels. John has three, Luke has three. But Matthew and Mark have only one saying, and that's the saying we're going to look at today. Matthew and Mark uh, have laid such a great importance upon this one word that Jesus spoke, this one sentence that he said, that it, they didn't want to use any of the other words. They didn't want to bring in the other things because this one they thought was the most important. This one was above all the others. And that's really surprising for somebody like Matthew in particular, because Matthew, all the way through his gospel, Matthew keeps writing to tell us that Jesus has literally fulfilled every Old Testament scripture. And he'll bring in things, no matter how far-fetched they might be, no matter how, how minor they might be, he wants us to know that Jesus literally fulfilled all of scripture. And yet when he comes to Jesus hanging on the cross, he only uses one of the sayings that Jesus said. Let me illustrate that a little bit. Um, in, on Palm Sunday, Jesus basically creates a parade, tells the disciples to go get a donkey. They uh, lay their garments on the donkey. People come and lay palm branches down on the road. Jesus marches into the city. Well, Matthew talks about that. Matthew quotes the Old Testament scripture. 
And the Old Testament, in this particular case, it's, it's from Micah the prophet, and it's written in poetry. And typically in Hebrew poetry, you write two lines, and the, the lines mean exactly the same thing, but you just do it as a way, we would call it rhyming. It's not so much rhyming in Hebrew, it's just, it's just uh, called parallelism. You, you write one line and you write another. And so in Matthew 21, we see Matthew quote the verse, Jesus came riding on a donkey, or the king is coming riding on a donkey, and on a foal, the coal, on a, on a coat, <laughs> I can't even say it, <laughs> and on a foal, the, uh, what's my word? The colt, yes, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, okay, something along those lines. I'm tripping. Okay, so it sounds like there's two donkeys, if you, you, mean you read each line, it makes it sound like there's two donkeys. And so you know what Matthew does? Matthew puts two donkeys in the story. Can you imagine that? Think about what's happening here. Jesus tells the disciples, go get a donkey. They bring, for Matthew, they bring two donkeys. The disciples put their garments on both donkeys. Jesus rides both donkeys into the city. Now, I don't know how that's possible. Can you explain that to me? Now, maybe like in the circus, he has one foot up on one donkey, one foot on the other donkey, and he's kind of riding in on the ring. I don't know how that works. How do you ride two donkeys? Now, when you read Mark, Luke, and John, they all agree there's only one donkey that Jesus is riding. Now, Matthew didn't make a mistake. He's putting two donkeys in there because he wants us to see that Jesus literally fulfilled every single word of Scripture. And yet, when he comes to Jesus hanging on the cross, he omits several things that the other Gospels tell us about. And it's because this one saying has become so all-consuming for Matthew. It is the most important. And it is found in Matthew, the 27th chapter. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus feels abandoned, isolated, forsaken. Did that happen? Did God abandon Jesus? Did God leave Jesus? What is happening to Jesus as Jesus is dying on the cross? Did God leave him? And then, when Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from God's love, how do we deal with that? How do we look at that, especially in our lives? If it happened to Jesus, might it happen to us as well? We have to understand what this scripture really is about. Here is Jesus. And notice, in the words that Matthew writes, he writes these really strange words. The Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. That's Aramaic. That's Jesus' native language. He's saying these words. But he, Matthew is including Jesus' native language in a gospel that's written in Greek. So he writes Aramaic in Greek, 
And it comes out just like we see it in our English. You're reading along in English, and all of a sudden you see this really strange language. That's how important Matthew thought this was. He wanted us to hear Jesus' literal words. And it's because he wants us to see, first of all, that Jesus is quoting. He's quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm where the writer is crying out because everything has turned against him. Everything in the world is about to fall apart. And he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed all these things to happen to me? Why am I so destroyed? Why is my whole life a mess? All my enemies have gathered around. They've completely torn apart everything that I have, everything that I am. And Jesus cries out those same words. Matthew wants us to see Jesus basically as we see ourselves. Human. Full of emotions. Maybe always complaining. Always crying out for the things that are happening around us. But more than that, Matthew wants us to see Jesus the man. I think we miss that sometimes today. We, we know, I hope, that Jesus is 100% divine. Jesus is God, 100%. But at the same time, our Christian faith for centuries has also proclaimed that Jesus was 100% human. He knows what we go through. He felt the same things that we feel We have a couple of scriptures in Hebrews, in fact, that that drive this point home. Hebrews chapter 2. He had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And two chapters later, chapter 4 of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Jesus was 100% human, and he did the same thing that we do. Don't you do that? I know I do. First time I run into trouble, something goes wrong, and I say, God, where are you? What'd you do? Did you leave me? Don't you love me? Don't we feel that same way? Here is Jesus on the cross feeling this ultimate abandonment, forsakenness, because he's human. He's like us. He knows what we go through. He knows what it's like. And exactly in every way, he feels the same thing that we feel. Even though for sure he knew the same thing that Paul writes, nothing can separate us from God's love. And yet we have a feeling, don't we? We get these feelings. I want you to look at this picture and see what you can see in this picture. You might have seen this before. This is a very common thing. Uh, If you've ever had a psychology class, you probably have seen this picture. In fact, there are some other classes as well, anything like that. Tell somebody, tell me what you see in this picture. Don't be afraid. 
It is a trick, but don't be afraid. (laughs) An old lady, you see an old lady with long, big nose and, yeah. A young lady, who said that? (laughs) There's a young lady? Can you pick out the young lady too? Now, she's looking back over her shoulder. Has her head to the side and looking back over her shoulder? Can you see it now? This is an optical illusion. Because our eyes can deceive us. And also, people see things in different ways. Or you, as yourself, you might look at the same thing like this, and you can see it in two different ways. You see, we have to learn to interpret the things that we see and hear and feel and touch. We have to learn to understand what they're trying to tell us. And not just automatically go to our our basic response, which especially, I think, for most of us as Christians, it comes out to be, God, don't you love me anymore? So now, can you see what this is? Kind of? No, you can't? (laughs) Seashell? And when I put this up to my ear, what am I hearing? The ocean? Sounds pretty loud. You know what you really hear when you do that? You hear the sound of your own blood running through your own blood vessels. You can get the same effect simply by cupping your hand and putting it up around your ear. Go ahead. (laughs) Now, it's not going to be as loud as a seashell because your hand doesn't have that hard surface. But it's exactly the same thing. You hear that little echo in there? And yet we say it's the ocean, don't we? We're deceived. We misinterpret the things around us. That's our problem as human beings. And that's our problem, especially when we come to God, because when bad things happen to us, we typically say, where's God? God, did you leave me? God, don't you love me? Why did you let this happen to me? Even Jesus As he's hanging on the cross, he feels this abandonment. We feel this. But just because we feel it does not make it true. Just because we see something doesn't make it real. Just because we hear something doesn't make it real. We have to learn to interpret what is real. And what God really does in our lives. So let me ask you to start this in a different way. Did God love Jesus? Sure he did. God loved Jesus wholeheartedly. (laughs) He called him his beloved son, my unique son. But God also loved the world. And maybe we want to ask, well, did God love the world more than he loved Jesus? That's not the right question. That doesn't matter. There is no way to do that. He loved both. And in fact, he loved Jesus so much that he said Jesus, he sent Jesus into the world to save the world. He loved both. And he knew the only way that was possible was to bring the two together. And so we have a fantastic scripture like John chapter 3, verse 16. By, in this way, God loved the world so that he sent the only begotten son in order that everyone who believes in him may not perish, 
but have eternal life. Jesus came because of God's love. God loved Jesus. God loved the world. And Jesus wanted to save the world. And yet Jesus still had a choice to make. And it really comes to a head as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that scene? After supper, Jesus takes the disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells them, wait here. I need to go over away here, over here and pray. And so Jesus goes over and he prays and he prays, Father, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go through with it. He knew what was going to happen. But then he finished that prayer. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. There is... A, a fantastic parallel to that found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And I love the way the numbers line up here. You have John 3.16 and you have 1 John 3.16. God loves us, right? God loves the world. So now in 1 John 3.16, we hear this. By this we have known love, that Jesus laid down his life for our sakes. And we ought to lay down our lives for the sake of others. God loves us. We are his sons and daughters. Earlier in Romans, we, we hit that passage that talked about that. Um, God, we are, we are children of God, heirs of what God has promised. God loves us. And God loves the world. And he's going to bring the two of us together. And so here this verse is calling upon us to lay down our lives in the same way that Jesus laid down his life. Now, Jesus died, and that was the ultimate way of laying down his life. But also, all the way through his life, Jesus laid it down. And that's what the writer is talking about here in 1 John. Jesus laid down his life by the service that he gave to people. All the way through, day by day, as he was was helping people, healing people, ministering to people, teaching people. He was laying down his own life. And yes, ultimately that led to his death. But laying down his life came first of all by the way that he lived. And just in case that we might miss this, the writer here in 1 John, he goes on in the very next verse to explain what he means by laying down our lives. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 Whoever has the life of the world and sees his brother or sister having a need. And then he uses this really strange phrase here. And shuts his intestines against him or her. How is the love of God remaining in him? Now, when you have a feeling, when, you, when, you, when something is really hitting you hard, where is it that you feel it? It's in the gut, isn't it? And he's using that word gut right there because that's how we respond to things. When things really get to us, it gets into our guts. And if we shut off our guts, then we've lost the love of God. Maybe the biggest issue for us, though, is how do we do that? How do we cope with the things in our life 
How do we manage with all the, the problems of this world? How do we keep on dealing with these things? And I think the simplest way to say that is to let God work it out. We have to let God work it out. We are walking by faith. And by faith, God is going to deal with those things. And yes, they're going to come. We're going to have those problems. But we need to let God work it out. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he feels abandoned. He feels like he lost. And the world thinks that they have won. But they didn't know about resurrection, did they? They didn't know about Easter Sunday that we celebrate next week. They didn't know what was about to happen because they didn't know what God can do in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our loss. God wins. God overcomes through the things that happen in our world. The cross is a symbol of defeat. The cross means death. Christians had to go out and try to tell people about Jesus. And they would say, you know, Jesus, our Lord and Master, they killed him. They put him on a cross and he died. Now, in that time, if you're telling this to anybody, they would say, wait a minute, he died on a cross? You mean he was a criminal then? Why would I trust a criminal or a traitor against Rome? The government put him to death because he's a traitor or a terrorist. That's what the cross means. Or it's what it meant. Doesn't mean that now, does it? In fact, I bet a lot of you are wearing a cross in some way today. You have a symbol of a cross somewhere. Because God took that ultimate symbol of defeat and made it victory. And that's what he will do with our lives as well. You see, the world looked at Jesus and said, you lose, we win. But God took that and said, no, this is a victory. In uh, Apostle Paul again, 1 Corinthians, he makes this a little bit clearer in, in, in the way that he writes about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world saw it as losing, but God made it winning. And the same thing happens in our lives. All the things that we face, no matter what it is, maybe it's something very personal, or maybe it is something like Jesus had to go through. God can take those things and turn them into victory. Last week, Pastor Joe talked about a couple of these scriptures uh, dealing with Romans again. And it says in, in uh, Romans chapter eight seventeen, If we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. There is a call that comes to us for suffering. Paul says it again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain this resurrection from the dead. 
And yet the same Paul is the one who writes, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Trouble can't. Tribulation. Sickness. Famine. Nakedness. Death. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And Paul should know. Paul experienced most of those things. He hadn't experienced death yet. But everything else, and he writes that about in a, in a passage in 2 Corinthians. There was a group of people who were complaining that all oh, Paul is just an old softy. He's, he's nothing we really need to pay attention to. And so Paul tried to defend himself. Said, this is what I have been through. This is what I have paid in order to follow Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And yet he says... Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love is there, even if we don't feel it. To me, one of the uh, most touching stories, poems, is called Footprints. I think that's common enough that you've probably heard about this in some way. It's a story about a man who's having a dream, and in the dream, it, it really basically sweeps through his entire life, and he sees scene after scene after scene of his, his own life story going before him. And it's as, as if he's walking along a beach, and as he's walking along, all these things, all this, the episodes of his life are happening to him. And as he's in this dream, he sees that there are two sets of footprints in the sand. God's walking with him. And through the good times, he sees those two sets of footprints. But all of a sudden, he sees a time when there was trouble in his life, when there was heartache, when there was something bad that happened. And he only sees one set of footprints. And so he asks God, God, in those hard times, why did you leave me? Because that's the way we feel, isn't it? Bad things happen. God, don't you love me? Why did you leave me? But God answers him and says, My precious, precious child, in those times, I did not leave you, but I carried you. That's why you only see one set of footprints during those times. God carries us through those things. God enables us to overcome those things. Paul goes on here in this passage in Romans chapter 8. He uses this phrase, more than conquerors. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now that might be, to me it's difficult to understand what they're trying to get at there. And I think there's a translation problem here of how this really works out. I heard a song years ago. Uh, this group was trying to explain this, and they, they said, we are more than conquerors, we are warriors. And I don't get how that's any more, one way or the other. Um, and it's just really, I think it's a misunderstood passage. There's another misunderstood passage that goes right along with this. Again, the Apostle Paul was writing it. It's Philippians 4.13. I bet many of you know that by heart. 
right? You got that memorized. You probably know what that means. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I hear people say that, and I think they get the same mixed-up idea because it sounds like it's all about me. I can do all things. I am faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, can leap tall buildings in a single bound. God doesn't make me Superman. That's not what that verse is saying at all. In fact, you read the paragraph around that verse, and it's talking about all the stuff that happens to us in life, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff. All the stuff in our life, and Paul says, I can handle it all because Christ enables me. Whatever comes my way, whatever there is, I know I'll get through it. That's exactly what he's talking about here in in Romans as well. We are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. Whatever comes to us, because it will come. Tribulation, temptation, all the trouble, all the danger, all the problems of life. Maybe even some of those other things he says, hungry, naked, attacked, abandoned. And yet none of them can separate us from God's love. Jesus, again, talks about this in John chapter 16, verse 33. This is one of the places where Jesus is with the disciples on the the last night before he goes to be crucified. And this is one of the last words that he leaves with them. I am saying these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And that's the same word that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Trouble. Trouble is going to come. Now, a lot of times we talk about the promises of God. (laughs) This is not one of the promises I want to claim. (laughs) Do you? But it sounds like a promise, doesn't it? In this world, you will have trouble. There's no escaping it. That's what this world's about. But read the rest now. But take courage. For I have overcome the world. It's important especially to see that phrase, take courage. Courage is not something that we're going to find someplace. It's not something that we have within us. It's not going to come just out of nowhere. It's something that we're going to have to take. Take courage. Because I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome for us. There was a monk named Telemachus. He lived in the 5th century, the 400s. Uh, And he was in Constantinople, which was called something else at that time, Uh, in that area, Turkey. And he he wanted to go to Rome because he he knew that the center of Christianity was Rome. And he's a monk. He wants to go and and feel the power of Christianity and see especially the, uh, the sites that were there. So he makes the long journey back at that time, especially many months, long journey to go over to Rome. And as he's walking into the city, he hears people cheering, shouting, all this noise. And he finds out it's coming from the Colosseum. He makes his way to the Colosseum, walks in, and he sees what's happening down on the arena floor. You have gladiators that are fighting one another. 
with swords, killing each other. A group of gladiators fighting to the death to see which one would survive all the others. He knows this can't be. This is wrong. This is not what God wants us to do. This one monk rushes down to the arena floor, stands between two gladiators and says, stop this. Don't do this. And the crowd thinks it's funny. They laugh at him. The gladiators try to push him aside and go on about their business. But he doesn't let them. He gets back in the way. And the crowd's up cheering, hollering slurs, saying, kill him. And finally, one of the gladiators does put a sword through Telemachus. The people see this and they become hushed. They quiet their chants at that time. Something changed that day. Something happened to the people that day. The emperor heard about it, and he decided that it's, it's time that we end this slaughterhouse. We don't need to be killing one another in the arena. That was the last time that gladiators fought in the Roman Colosseum. Because Telemachus decided that it was time to come to an end. Yes, it cost him his life. But God used it for something more than that. God used it to bring transformation to our world. God takes losing and turns it into winning. God takes the hard things that we face and changes our world. That's what God does. Now, you're not going to hear something like this if you turn on the TV and go to one of the religious channels and you hear somebody preaching. Oh, they'll talk about God's love, for sure. God loves you. God wants to take care of you. God will bless you. God will take care of all your problems. And I'm going to say that's true. God does do that for us. Doesn't he? He does love us. He does take care of us. He is concerned. But that's the elementary school level of Christianity. That's not full discipleship. We need to get a college level education here and talk about what really happens in our world and how God wants to use us to win the world. And it might result in our death. Most of the time it does not. But it does require us to lay down our lives. See, we have a choice to make. Will we follow in our master's footsteps? Just as Jesus in the garden, yes, he had a struggle with it. God let this cup pass from me, but he chose to follow God's will. Can we do the same? To follow God's will. You might know the story of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in Ecuador to a tribe of Indians. Uh, He had grown up here in the States. Uh, He went to Wheaton Bible College, graduated, wanted to be a missionary. His parents and friends said, oh, you'd be fantastic as a youth minister. Why don't you just stay in the States and be a youth minister? You could really change lives. And I feel like I need to go to a mission field to people who have not heard the gospel before. He went to Ecuador working with a tribe. And they were a friendly tribe of of people that uh, 
had been a little isolated from the rest of the world, but they talked about another tribe that was deep in the jungle that nobody dared go near. Their word for these people was Alka, which technically means savage. Because if, you, if any outsiders came near their village, they would kill you. They had very little contact with the outside world. They were still living as if it was 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. But that's the group that Jim Elliott thought he needed to reach. After years of planning, actually, living his life, he got married, had a baby. But about five years later, as a missionary then, he decides now is the time. We've done all this work. We've been preparing all this time to learn languages, to, to get ourselves ready. Five men take a small plane, fly up into the, the high places of the mountains where this tribe is supposed to be. They, they land and make camp. There is a tribesman that comes out of the jungle and sees them, and they really can't communicate, but they give him some gifts to take back to people. They, uh, you know, are very kind, very nice to him. They even take him up for a plane ride in the plane, a little single-engine plane. They take him for a plane ride. Can you imagine that if you've never even seen a plane before? All of a sudden, you're going to ride and, and fly in the air. Well, it seemed like everything worked out real nice. That man, though, goes back to his village, and whatever he said didn't, didn't work well. The next day, 10 tribesmen show up. And at first, they don't make any moves. But all of a sudden, they rise up and kill all five men, throw their bodies in the river and let them wash downstream. Jim Elliott, 29 years old, working for God, lost his life. Several years later, Jim's wife does the exact same thing, gets a group together, and goes to minister to these Alka Indians. And they can't believe that. You mean you're his wife? Why are you here? Because of love. God's love for me, God's love for you. It's worth any sacrifice. It's worth every sacrifice. Because I think the thing that we forget maybe is, is something along the lines that Jim wrote in his diary, he said this line that you might have heard of too, a very common phrase. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The Apostle Paul kind of said it in a little different way. Same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why would we do these things? Why would we even care Why don't we be just like the rest of the world? They don't care. But we do. Because God does. The difference is right there in what Paul says. Resurrection. What we'll be dealing with next week. What we'll be celebrating. Jesus' resurrection. That changes everything. We're not living for this life. We know there's something more to come. So we might face trouble in this life. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be problems. But God loves us. Those things can't separate us from God's love. Now today I talked about some extreme examples 
of laying down your life, Jesus himself, first of all. What really matters more is how we go about living our life. How we do that from day to day. How we live out this truth that Paul is saying to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of of Christ in us. I think our problem, again, my problem, (laughs) comes when I maybe forget it. Let's say forget it. It's, it's probably more of a lack of faith, but at least I all of a sudden forget something. Maybe I forget about God's love. Or maybe it's in some ways, maybe you can know somebody, relate to somebody that you know that it seems like they just can't receive love. You try to love them, and they, they, they shun it. They turn you away. And maybe we do that to God. But whatever it is, we have to learn that what Paul is saying here, that it doesn't matter what we see in this world. It doesn't matter what's actually happening to us. We have to learn that nothing can separate us from God's love. We might even cry out, just like Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God doesn't forsake us. God doesn't abandon us. God takes the things that look like losing to the world, things that look like our lives have been devastated, and God uses them to transform our world. That's what happens when we look to the cross. That's what we need today. Daniel, come on up. Let's lead us in a closing song. Look to the cross. It's the cross that changed the world. It's the cross that changes us. And by our discipleship, as we follow in Jesus' example, that world will continue to be changed. Will you stand with me? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we praise you for this day, for your power at work in our lives, for what you have done through Jesus our Lord. And what you want to do in our lives. Do it today, Lord, that we can truly receive your love and then share that love with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray.